This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Welcome to episode two of Bobcast. I am Caleb Castro. And I'm Mark Scutero. And I'm Andrew Smith. We're happy to be with you as we continue our discussion of Herman Bovink's The Wonderful Works of God, this excellent work of systematic theology just published by Westminster Seminary Press. But before we begin, just a few informational and housekeeping items. If you like what we're doing and want to get involved, we are on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Bovcast. That's B-A-V-Cast. Follow us, share us, and let your friends know about Bovcast. Or if you want to contact us, you can send us an email at bovcast at gmail.com if you have questions, ideas, anything you'd like to tell us. Maybe you're wanting to get your hands on this book and join us, but you haven't yet. We're using the new Westminster Seminary Press edition and its beautiful edition, nice hardcover. They did a great job on it, and we would recommend it to you. However, if you're looking at other options, this book has been published before under the title Our Reasonable Faith. And it is the same translation in English. It even has the same page numbers. So if you have a copy of Our Reasonable Faith or get a copy of it, you're good to go. There are some different forewords and other features, but the text you're reading is the same. And if you want or need an ebook version, Logos Bible Software has Our Reasonable Faith available that you can buy and read on the Logos app on PC, Apple, or Android devices. So you do have options. However you want to read this book, just read this book, read it along with us, and we think it will be of great service to you. Also, if you haven't already, you'll want to go back and listen to episode one, as we'll be picking up today right where we left off and referencing back to some of the things we said before. It's less than 20 minutes, we try to keep things nice and bite-sized here on Bobcast, and then you'll be all caught up and ready to go. Now, housekeeping done, let's get back to Bob Inc. We're on pages two and three of The Wonderful Works of God. Perhaps in a, in a more positive light, and, and just in a way, we, we've spoken a lot about negativities of, uh, of the world and culture and, and society, especially in application today. But we know that there's another side of the coin, right? Mark mentioned the arts, and really the, how Bobbing goes into the beauty of the arts. Let's expand on that a little bit. Certainly, these things in the world, the Lord is good, and the Lord is working things, even in this world with sin in it, this fallen world. He's working things for good. Page three of that first paragraph Second sentence, God makes everything beautiful in his time. He makes everything happen at the right moment. And at the moment, he has fixed for it. So that history in its entirety and in its parts corresponds to the counsel of God and exhibits the glory of that counsel. And in one of those ways that he does so, we see in the flourishing of culture, science. So with this issue of sin um, and everybody trying to give their their answer, trying to bring about a, a reason for explaining these things, um, on what basis... Are we creating these answers? You know, we're not just sensual beings, as he's been saying. We, we don't just go with feelings, but man does use reason. He does use uh, volition, uh, uh, choice and will. But that, uh, that, that reason and, and will, if it's detached from the scripture, is going to be corrupt. And that's the problem. So what is the focus that, uh, that scripture is trying to, to tell us to truly 
know our purpose, to truly know our reason. Scripture wants us to know what's in the heart and what the heart should rightly desire. Yeah, it's like what Bavink says there at the top of page three. Hence, all of our rational and volitional life has its point of origin in the heart and is governed by it. And I know that, you know, people have written whole books on this, like Dr. Troxel's With All Your Heart that just came out talking about how how the heart is not just this emotional thing that we carry with it, but it's also the intellectual center of the man. And, and, and once we start to understand that and we understand how God works in that, and we understand how Scripture plays in, into all of that, you know, we could see that this turns a corner. I know that things were getting kind of dark there and everything, but, but you know, as Bob Inc. continues, he says, God makes everything beautiful in his time. He makes everything happen at the right moment, at the moment he has fixed for it. So that history in its entirety and in its parts corresponds to the whole counsel of God and exhibits the glory of that counsel. Um, God has placed man in the midst of this world totality and has set the times in man's heart in order that, that he should not rest in the external visible manifestation, but should instead seek out and come to know the eternal thoughts of God in the, in the temporal course of nature and of history. That's beautiful. I mean, I know that that's kind of like a refrain that we keep on having throughout beautiful, 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 but just the way that he's pinning these things, it's hard to read this and not be like, oh, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. The heart's kind of like a uh, spiritual thermometer as well as this source where we're understanding the things of the time, right? I do think that there's an important caveat there, though, when you say it's a source. We're not talking like introspection. You know, we're we're talking about mulling over the things of God. We're talking about going over his revealed word. Not to go back to the dark and negative again, necessarily, but the reality that the heart of man is going to reveal what the man thinks and believes. Yes, regarding God, even in a negative way, even in a simple way, the hardness of man's heart against God. Yeah, I mean, so what, what Bob Inc. is going on there in the third page is going more into that positive sense, definitely. That's why we have uh, that the heart is uh, deceitful. The heart does kind of tell us things, or I should rather say the heart reveals what is stored up in it, you know, come out through the mouth. And I think that's why also we have then in our, you know, the beginning of uh, Belgic One, you know, what do you not only confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, the mouth will be ultimately betrayed by the heart. So it's talking about the eternal thoughts of God and the temporal course of nature and of history. And, and then there's this yearning for an eternal order, which God has planted in the heart of man in the inmost recesses of his being, he says here on page three, in the core of his personality. And, and this is the cause of, of the indisputable fact that everything which belongs to the temporal order cannot satisfy him. Well, and we've kind of come full circle here. I mean, we've sort of started our way at the at the bottom, the the lower parts of creation, the lower orders of creation, and now circled our way back around to to God and God alone being man's highest good. All humanity, whether people admit it or not, they have this yearning for an eternal order, as as Calvin puts us, the the sense for the divine. Something innate in us desires God and desires to know the things of God. We may suppress it in unrighteousness, but we all have that and we all seek that. Right. And the flip side of that is we see that Calvin calls the heart an idol factory. Mm. It's true. Right. I mean, that's that's where Bobbing says right in the middle of there. It's no profit to a man that he should gain wife and children, houses, fields, treasures, property, indeed the whole world. If in gaining his soul should suffer loss, uh, quoting Matthew 16 there, for the whole world cannot balance the scale against the worth of a man. Yeah, that's huge right now. 
Yeah, this line really stuck out to me. For the whole world cannot balance the scale against the worth of a man. It really got my attention in thinking about this present crisis we're facing in the world with the coronavirus and how most of the United States and much of the world is more or less locked down. And as a result of that, it's wreaking untold damage on the economy. There have been millions of jobs that have been lost. So some have now, as a result of this, started making the argument that basically we need to sacrifice. Some don't, some may not say it this explicitly, although some do, that we basically need to sacrifice the elderly, the weak, the immunocompromised to save the economy. Basically, to get the economy moving, we have to lift these bans, even if it means exposing potentially millions of people to a disease. Uh, that will most likely end their lives. And it's one thing when you hear that kind of argument from from naturalistic materialists in the world, it's still, I think even on that level, shocking um, and problematic. But I'm hearing Christian conservative thinkers making that same argument, and it's just shocking. It's appalling to think that as Christians, people who should hold in high view the image of God and human dignity as a result of man bearing the image of God, just so quickly jettison that for pragmatic and for worldly reasons. The entire world cannot balance the scale against one person. It's just, it's it's completely destroys that equation and that argument. And not only that, but just think of what it's doing to our witness in the world. For instance, a lot of these same people, these Christian thinkers who are making these arguments about saving the economy are the same people who at the same time are adamantly against abortion. I've heard the same logic many times to try to support the idea that abortion should be available and legal is that, well, the mother doesn't have a good job. She doesn't have an education. She can't economically support the baby. Therefore, the baby should die. It would be better for the baby to die and not live in in a depressed economic situation and it just it completely destroys our credibility and it shows how inconsistent we are as christians if we make that kind of argument and so easily jettison human value and dignity when it's convenient for us to do so right right you know think about that the next time you know you you're going out on your coronation you know and you're you know potentially getting infected and sharing that with, you know, your loved one. Maybe it's not your grandpa, but maybe you cough on somebody else's grandma or, or you know, just it, it should make us think about all of our interactions with all of our other, you know, brothers and sisters and just, you know, common grace in the kingdom of God because people are created in the image of God. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. That's, you know, you mentioned the uh, it's not just secular thinkers or, or whatever talking about this and which is a very interesting notion uh in this time of like social justice where there are still some saying that but uh in light of what you just said i want to read that that last line there of that paragraph before the asterisks there is no one so rich that he can by any means redeem the soul of his brother nor give to god a ransom for him the redemption of the soul is too precious for any creature to achieve I think it's interesting, the, uh, the full context of that passage he quotes there from Psalm 49, starting in verse 5, actually uh, is, is in the context of a reprimand for fear of evil days. Uh, the passage says, 
Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches. Then the passage, no one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. So that they should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. In verse 12, people, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. But it's interesting that this, this passage that, yeah, that Bob and Kaz here is actually, yeah, like I said, in the context of, of fear, fear in evil days, uh, because man wants to store up hope in something else, like, say, yeah, uh, an economy in, in, civil, in civil means. But at the end of the day, this is an earthly desire. In Psalm 49, verse 12 points out, such people are like the beasts that perish. And as Christians, we shouldn't desire to live or think like the beasts who perish. Because we're, we're not these naturalistic materialists who only have hope in this world or this life. We know that God has created us, even the weak and the old among us, in his image, with value and dignity. And also as Christians, we can rightly recognize this eternal longing, this eternal yearning that Bavink wrote about here. And it reflects an eternal reality that we're someday going to enter. And so we can't forget about that even when we're facing very real difficulties in this present age, like this virus, like the collapse of the economy, like whatever the world can throw at us. There's still greater things. There's still this God who's a greater good. Sure. Yeah. But with that, we're out of time for today. We appreciate you joining us for another Bobcast as we look at man's highest good in chapter one of the wonderful works of God. We hope you'll join us next time and we'll continue our study through this book and through this chapter of this book. We hope to see you then. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, make sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Bobcast. That's B-A-V-Cast. Or send us an email at Bobcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.